Now, did you listen as I read this passage? Did you notice that there is something really odd in this passage? In fact, it is so strange, it almost sounds cruel and insane. Because God says, hear, you deaf, and look, you blind, that you may see. Did you hear that? God is commanding the deaf to hear, and he is commanding the blind to see. Does that sound reasonable to you? Or is that what God does? He rebukes people for not being able to do what they cannot do, and he judges them for it. Is that what God is like? To punish people for what he knows that they cannot do. And so if you were reading and if you were listening to this passage, this passage sounds both unreasonable and unfair. Is that what God is like? Well, I think this is an important question. And I think we need to know on the outset, the answer is absolutely not. But let me show you how we get to that answer. First, we see the blind and the deaf servant. The blind and the deaf servant. Now, if you remember, back in chapter 41, verse 8, this is what the Lord said to the nation of Israel. He said, But you, Israel, my servant, Jacob, whom I have chosen, the offspring of Abraham, my friend. And so back in chapter 41 in verse 8, God addressed the corporate nation, and he called the nation of Israel his servant, his chosen servant. And he said it with great warmth. You know, I, I bet you feel the same way as I do. When I meet the children of my friends, I feel toward the children of my friends the affection that I don't feel towards other children. When I see the little ones in this church, they're special to me than the children that I've never met before. Why? Because why? They're the children of my friends, and that matters. And so automatically, there's a warmth and affection that I have toward my children's, my friends' children. And notice what God says to Israel. My servant whom I have chosen, the offspring of Abraham, my friend. When God called the nation of Israel his friend, it was with an incredible warmth. You, you are the children of my dear friend Abraham. I love you. I care about you. You are precious to me. And then we remember chapter, uh, chapter 42, verse 1. Behold my servant, whom I uphold, my chosen, in whom my soul delights. Everything that God said about the nation of Israel in chapter 41 gets intensely concentrated in chapter 42 on one person that Isaiah calls the servant of the Lord. And of course, we consider who that is. That's Jesus. So all of God's 
calling, affection, warmth, love becomes distilled down and concentrated upon that one servant of the Lord Jesus. And God calls him, Jesus, my servant, my chosen, just like he called the nation of Israel. And so what we saw in these two chapters is the thing that we see all over the Bible. One person, Jesus, stands before God in the same kind of relationship as the entire nation. One man, Jesus, stands in the same relationship as the rest of the nation, indeed, as the rest of the world. And in fact, Jesus is the servant that Israel should have been. The loving service that Israel failed to give to God, God receives from Jesus. And so we see this dynamic in all over the Bible, and especially here, Jesus, he is the servant, the faithful one, the loyal one who stands in the place of the nation of Israel and indeed all of mankind. And Jesus does for them and in their place what they should have done for God and to God. And so what, what we see is that the nation's identity and calling are intertwined with the identity and the calling of the one man, Jesus Christ. And Jesus is the obedient servant. In contrast, Israel is the servant that neglects her Lord, and Israel is the servant that neglects her calling. And that is what makes Israel blind and deaf servant. So look at chapter 42, verse 20. He sees many things, but does not observe them. His ears are open, but he does not hear. You see, God is describing through Isaiah their spiritual blindness and spiritual deafness. Israel chose not to see God's light and willfully made a decision to ignore God's voice. And that's what makes them spiritually blind and spiritually deaf. And we need to understand that we, uh, in our sinfulness, we accuse God of unfairness rather than acknowledge the fault is with us. That's what a sinful man does. It goes all the way back to Genesis chapter 3, right? What does Adam say? He does not say, I am sorry, I have sinned. What does he say? Why are you blaming me because of what the woman did, that, that, that woman that you gave me? <laughs> That's the conduct of the sinful man, to find fault with God and accuse God of being unfair rather than acknowledging that God's judgment is both just and due because of the willful refusal to see and hear. So spiritual blindness and deafness fall upon people who want to be blind and deaf. So when God says here, hear you deaf, and look, you blind. He is not 
addressing first and foremost a people who could not see or who could not hear, but who would not see and who would not hear. So that is the blind and the deaf servant, Israel. And the second thing we see is that God magnifies his law and makes it glorious. The law is magnified and made glorious. Again, chapter 42, verse 20, we read, The Lord was pleased for his righteousness' sake to magnify his law and make it glorious. In other words, God's purpose is to display the honor and the worth of everything that Israel despised. And he magnifies and glorifies his law in two ways. First, God magnifies and glorifies his law by holding people responsible who despise his law. And so verse 24, who gave up Jacob to the looter and Israel to the plunderers? Was it not the Lord against whom we have sinned, in whose ways they would not walk, and whose law they would not obey? What is Isaiah saying? Of course, this is written against the backdrop of the Babylonian conquest of Israel. But it's not the Babylonians whose might and whose ingenuity, whose plans proved mightier than Israel. It's God. God brought calamity and afflictions upon Israel. Why? Uh, the Danish philosopher Soren Kierkegaard has this parable. It's an interesting parable. And in this parable, he talks about a man who breaks into a department store in the middle of the night. But he doesn't steal anything. What he does is that he, he uh, rearranges the price tags. So he takes a, a price tag of a precious jewel and puts it on a cheap trinket. And likewise, he takes the price tag of a cheap trinket and puts it on expensive things. And the next morning, chaos ensues because everything is wrong. What is costly and expensive have been labeled cheap, and what is cheap and worthless have been labeled expensive. In a manner of speaking, that's what sin does. Sin is like a thief in the night that breaks into the world and rearranges the price tag on everything. And when God judges the world, that is restoring the right price tag so that we can finally see the true value and the true worth of everything. And it is because of the thief, sin, obedience to God's law seemed expensive, and it's because of the thief that rebellion seems a bargain. But God's righteous judgment falls on sinful Israel, and with that judgment, God shows her that she has purchased her spiritual blindness and deafness at a high cost. So that's what God does to, to magnify the law and glorify it. He holds people responsible 
who have despised that. He brings judgment upon them, and his judgment is an act of a correction. He shows and he declares the true worth and the true value of everything. Israel sinned because they thought obedience was too costly and that rebellion was a bargain. Not so. It turns out that rebellion was costly. Secondly, God magnifies and glorifies his law through obedience to the law. And so God, he will appoint a faithful servant. Israel is a faithless servant, disloyal servant, an unloving servant. But God will appoint a faithful servant, the servant of the Lord, and that is, of course, Jesus. And he will come, and he will magnify the law, and he will make it glorious by carrying out everything that God has instructed and taught and commanded. And when we see Jesus treating the law of the Lord with honor, with utmost respect and care, we see in Jesus the true worth and true value of everything. We see Jesus seeing everything in God's ways. And we see in Jesus how attentive he is to hear everything that God says. And so in that servant's obedience, in that faithful obedience of Jesus to God's law, all that he has commanded, God's law is magnified and it is made glorious because Jesus shows us the true worth of God's law when he gives away his very life to fulfill it. In that life and in that act, he is saying, the law of the Lord is more precious than my soul. The name of the Lord is more precious than my comfort. And what that means for you and for me is this, that being a Christian means learning to value things rightly through Jesus. Now, it is true. um, Obedience will cost us. But I think there is a difference between recognizing that obedience costs us and saying that obedience is costly. Let me explain. Something is costly only when we think that what we get in return is not as valuable as what we have put into it. Imagine a situation. You spend $100 to buy a stick of gum. That's a costly mistake. Because there's no stick of gum that's worth $100. You spend more than you received. It is a costly mistake. But imagine, and I sometimes fantasize about this. Imagine you, you went to some random garage sale, yard sale, and you know something about art. But the people that are selling it, they have no idea. And there's a missing Rembrandt painting. And it's on sale for $100. What do you do? You plop down your $100 bill and you walk away with the missing Rembrandt painting. Was that a costly purchase? By no means. Something is costly only 
when what we get back from the transaction is not worth the cost of what we put into it. And so let me ask you this question. Um, Israel, that obedience was costly. And the rebellion and going their own ways and doing their own thing was a bargain. And what do you think? Do you also think that obedience is too expensive? Now, I am not saying, and no one who knows anything about the Bible or life would say that obedience does not cost us anything. It costs us, certainly. But it is, is it costly? Is it a bad transaction, to, to use crass expression? And so God, he makes his law, he magnifies his law, and he makes it glorious. First, by holding responsible those who despise it. And in judgment, he puts the right price tag. And secondly, he magnifies and glorifies the law through the obedience of his son, Jesus Christ, who shows us the true worth, the true value of things. And lastly, as we've been discussing spiritual blindness, spiritual deafness, the last thing we consider is the cure. Is there a cure for spiritual blindness and spiritual deafness? Hear you deaf and look you blind that you may see. God is neither, neither unfair nor unreasonable because spiritual blindness and deafness are self-inflicted. But the agony of spiritual problem is that it's really easy to get into one, but impossible to get out of it. So look at verse 22. God says, but this is a people plundered and looted. They are all of them trapped in holes and hidden in prisons. They have become plunder with none to rescue, spoil with none to say, restore. They got themselves in a bind, but there's no one among them who could free them, and they have no ability to free themselves. I don't know if you've seen this clip that's been going around on the internet. It's a clip of a sheep that fell headfirst and got stuck in a narrow ditch. It's utterly and completely helpless. And in this clip, a boy pulls out the sheep. And the sheep takes a few steps and falls right back into the ditch. That's us. That's what a spiritual problem looks like. It's really easy to get into one but impossible to get out of it. We are just as helpless, and there is none of us, none among us, not one of us who can say, be free, get better, restore. Because our rescue and transformation can only come from outside of us. And it's only God's Spirit that that can give us a new heart that delights in God's word. And only the Son of God can open the eyes of the blind and the ears of the deaf. And herein lies both the agony 
and the hope of the situation. Uh, agony because pride and foolishness keep the world from seeking that grace in Jesus Christ. It kept Israel from seeking that grace in Jesus. And it may be see, uh, keeping us today pride and foolishness that we do not come to Jesus for help. But there is also hope because Jesus can rescue even the most helplessly stuck, lost, and ruined souls. And that's what makes Jesus so sweet because when we come to him, we realize that in some sense, he is also blind, and in some sense, he is also deaf. Now, look at verse 20. Isaiah says, He sees many things, but does not observe them. His ears are open, but does not hear. Now, to be sure, these words are directed against the sinful Israel, who see, but refuse to take notice, who hear, who refuse to pay attention. That's what Isaiah meant when he says he sees many things but does not observe them. His ears are open, but he does not hear. But as I think about who Jesus is, and as I think about our situation, it seems to me those words are actually a very apt description of how Jesus is to us. He sees all our sins, but he does not keep score. He hears everything that is wrong about us, but he remembers them not. A censorious person finds fault in every circumstance and with everyone. But Jesus, he is gracious. And he does not dwell on, on our sins that he himself has paid and atoned for. Of course, he sees our sins every day. But he is gracious that he, he does not pay attention in the sense of holding us at the end of his wrath and holding us alienated from his care and love. He hears all that we do, all that is wrong about us, but he loves us still. That's grace, to be blind to sins and fault of sinners. And that's why we know that Jesus, he will never tire of pulling us out of the ditch. <laughs> uh, and he will never be surprised at how helpless we are. And he'll never be turned off by how dumb we are. Jesus is good, and he is our Savior. Amen. Now let's pray together. Heavenly Father, we thank you for teaching us both the failings of the faithless servant Israel, and in Israel's story, we see our stories 
For we too are faithless, disloyal, and unloving towards you. So we thank you that you have given us hope in Jesus Christ. For in the faithfulness of that servant, our Savior, your beloved Son Jesus, we have redemption, forgiveness, hope, and grace. So we pray, O God, help us to know how sweet, precious Jesus is, that in him we may continue to find our grace, our hope, and our joy. And we pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen.